So, Nick, the University of Michigan incoming intern class has done a really amazing thing that they've wanted us to be involved in, and I'm super excited about this. This goes to show, I think, Faye, this this podcast obviously has exceeded our wildest dreams, and we're so happy that people are thrilled with it. And starting next week, we now have the Creogs Over Coffee Intern Challenge. Yep. So far, the month of June, there are 19 episodes that the University of Michigan incoming intern class has put out so that other incoming interns can learn about certain topics that will be impactful for their intern year. And so first up on June 1st is going to be episode nine, perioperative care and optimization for GYN patients. So follow along with them on social media too, because they'll be reviewing the high points from each episode to get you ready for your intern year or Faye for us, the board's on July 16th. So be sure that if you're on Twitter or Instagram to go and search for hashtag OBGYN Intern Challenge to follow along with all of these episodes. Faye, are you excited to move to Philadelphia and start this fellowship up? I'm super excited to move to Philadelphia, leaving Rhode Island after 12 years. It's been a long time, but, you know, I think one of the things that has led to success in Rhode Island, and I hope as I move on to Seattle, is having the OBG project in my back pocket. Definitely. I've had so much help from them um, with the emails that they send, with relevant topics and new articles that are coming out every day, and also with the library on their website through OBG First, where I keep all of my favorite articles and resources so that I can go back and visit them. With this new rising chief resident class, you too can go get OBG First, which is the premium subscription project from OBG Project, absolutely free. Head on over to our website at creogsovertocoffee.com. Check out the sidebar and figure out how you can get signed up for a whole year of free OBG First. Alright guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee. Today we'll be talking about inherited thrombophilias and anticoagulation therapy in pregnancy. This was a special requested episode. So Nick, what are our objectives for today? First, we'll discuss the changes in pregnancy that can actually lead to hypercoagulation. Well, next talk about different types of inherited thrombophilias and how they can affect pregnancy. And finally, we'll understand what different types of inherited thrombophilias or a personal history of thromboembolism do in terms of requirements for anticoagulation during or after pregnancy. The reading to follow along for this podcast are practice bulletins 196 and 197. It's definitely helpful to have them there. There's lots of tables in both of these that sort of bring this topic out and to help you stratify your knowledge. Okay, Faye, we're going to do a throwback here real quick. Tell me about these physiologic changes of pregnancy. Yeah, so let's take this all the way back to 2018 when we first started this podcast. And one of our first episodes was where we talked about the physiologic changes of pregnancy. So if you remember back to what we talked about then, because of these changes, pregnant women are four to five times more likely to have a thromboembolic event than non-pregnant women. 
And the reason this is, is we can think about this in terms of Virchow's triad. So as a reminder, that's hypercoagulability, endothelial injury, and venous stasis. And pregnancy, as well as the postpartum period, puts you for increased risk for at least two of these. Um, And certainly the postpartum period, you can argue, may even put you at increased risk for having endothelial injury as well. So in pregnancy, we have hypercoagulability. There's increased clotting potential, decreased anticoagulant activity, and also a decrease in fibrinolysis. You then also have venous stasis. This is especially true in the lower extremities because of the compression of the inferior vena cava by the growing uterus. People with inherited thrombophilias are at even higher risk for thromboembolic events during pregnancy. So, Nick, talk to us a little bit about the different types of inherited thrombophilias and maybe also a little bit about how much of a risk they put you at for having VTEs. Yeah, absolutely. So there's lots of different types. And again, the practice bulletins are really helpful in terms of stratifying all this information. And certainly we'll have it on the website because this can get a little dry. Some of the inherited thrombophilias include factor V Leiden, prothrombin gene mutations, and you can actually even stratify those further into homozygosity and heterozygosity. Um, There's also antithrombin deficiency, protein S deficiency, protein C deficiency. But let's go over just some highlights of each. For factor V Leiden, the most common mutation is to have heterozygosity or to be a factor V Leiden heterozygote. This is responsible for almost 40% of VTE events during pregnancy. So Again, it's something that you really should consider or have in the back of your mind for a differential. By itself, though, it doesn't really put you at that much of an increased risk for VTE. But if you do have already a personal history of VTE, your risk goes up to about 10% or so. The next most common is the prothrombin gene mutation. And again, heterozygosity is much more common. Like factor V Leiden, if you have homozygosity, you're at a higher risk of, of venous thromboembolism with that risk being for heterozygosity, if no prior history of VTE, somewhere between half a percent and two and a half percent, and for homozygosity, between two to four percent. Antithrombin gene deficiency is the next up and is not really that common, only about a 0.02% prevalence, but by contrast to the others, is highly thrombotic. In non-pregnant people, antithrombin gene deficiency carries a 25-fold higher risk of VTE, which is ridiculous, frankly. Um, More severe deficiencies um, can be associated with even further increased VTE risk. So if you have a personal VTE risk already, you have severe antithrombin deficiency, meaning on the hematologic scale, less than 60% activity of antithrombin. Your risk of VTE in pregnancy can be as high as 40%, which if they flip in a coin for a pulmonary embolus, that's terrible. Right. It's super scary. So I know we've talked like about those three in particular, but you sort of get a sense now that there are some things that are high risk and low risk. And actually what you can do for your own knowledge and help later on down the line in terms of remembering management of these things is actually to do that, to divide it up into high risk and low risk thrombophilias. So the high risk ones you should remember are factor five Leiden homozygosity, prothrombin gene homozygosity, antithrombin deficiency, or factor V Leiden and prothrombin gene heterozygosity together, meaning that you have one mutation of each gene. 
The low-risk ones, on the other hand, are independent factor V Leiden heterozygosity, independent prothrombin gene heterozygosity, protein C or protein S deficiency, or having antiphospholipid antibody. Now that we've listed all of these and we've acknowledged that and having a VTE event is a bad thing, we should try and prevent them ostensibly, right? Yes, um, definitely. However, it's important to realize that According to ACOG, there is insufficient evidence that anticoagulation prevents adverse pregnancy outcomes in patients with inherited thrombophilias. So that means that just in the setting of having one of these risk factors for venous thromboembolism, putting folks on anticoagulation is not going to prevent their independent otherwise risk of preeclampsia, growth restriction, abruption, etc. Um, or at least the evidence is insufficient at this point. There's no indication to start thromboprophylaxis in that instance, only there to prevent VTE. All right, Faye, let's throw it back to you for a minute. Um, how do we detect these thrombophilias? How do we know that somebody even has one that we should even be considering anticoagulation for? So I'm going to deflect your question, Nick, and just let you guys know that there is a huge table in um, the practice bulletin for inherited thrombophilias, and I'm not going to go into them on the podcast because you guys can read about them on our website. It is super dry, but essentially it's a good table to look at and to memorize. It talks about the different testing methods for all of the um, inherited thrombophilias that we talked about, and also whether or not you can actually get testing during pregnancy or during an acute thrombotic event. The other question I think a lot of people have is going to be, well, now that we've talked about these inherited thrombophilias, what types of anticoagulation should we use for pregnant patients? And then who should be on anticoagulation, right? So first of all, what's safe in pre the pregnancy and postpartum period, the tried and true really are unfractionated heparin, um, as well as low molecular weight heparin, or uh, as we refer to it, Lovenox. Neither cross the placenta and are safe in the pregnancy and postpartum period. Now, I do have to put in a word for warfarin. So I'm sure we have all learned in medical school that warfarin is not safe in pregnancy, and we know that there are harmful fetal effects, especially in the first trimester. So definitely don't use warfarin as the first-line anticoagulant if you don't have to. The only case where it would be used in pregnancy is for women who have mechanical heart valves because there's a higher risk of VTE in these women even when they're placed on low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin. And so usually these types of patients are managed by a multidisciplinary team and really low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin is used between weeks 6 to 13 in pregnancy so as not to affect organogenesis. Um, and then the patient will later be switched back to warfarin during the rest of their pregnancy. Pregnancy. And finally, oral direct thrombin inhibitors should be avoided in pregnancy and postpartum because of insufficient data on safety. All right, Nick. So I think this is where the meat of our discussion is going to be. We're going to talk about who should be on anticoagulation, right? There is a great table for this from Practice Bulletin 196, um, but tables are dry. So the way that I like to think about it and try to remember this is to break it down into people who do and do not have inherited thrombophilias. So let's first talk about people who have inherited thrombophilias. We're going to further break that down into people who have low-risk thrombophilias and high-risk thrombophilias. And this goes back again to what you had taught us, Nick, about low-risk being those people who have, you know, factor V Leiden heterozygosity, um, prothrombin gene heterozygosity, protein C, protein 
protein-S, things like that, whereas high risk would be things like factor V Leiden, homozygosity, antithrombin gene, things like that. So let's talk about low risk first. If you have a low risk thrombophilia and you've never had a history of VTE and you do not have a first degree relative that has a VTE, in the antepartum setting, you can consider doing nothing, meaning not putting them on anticoagulation at all and just doing surveillance. In the postpartum period, you can also consider surveillance or if they have additional multiple risk factors, things like having a C-section and obesity and other risk factors that may put them at higher risk, you can then consider uh, prophylactic dosing of low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin. If they have a first-degree relative with a venous thrombo embolism. Again, antepartum, you can consider doing nothing or you can consider prophylactic dosing. And in the postpartum period, you could give prophylactic or an intermediate dose of low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin. And we'll have that dosing on our website as well. And finally, um, if you're low risk and you have a personal history of venothromboembolism, then in both the antepartum and postpartum period, you should consider putting them on at least prophylactic dosing or intermediate dosing. So let's switch over to high risk. If you have a high risk inherited thrombophilia, you can either have no history of VTE and no family history of VTE, or you can have a first degree relative or a personal history of VTE. So if you have no history of venothromboembolisms, in the antepartum and postpartum period, you can put your patient on prophylactic or intermediate dosing. If they have a first-degree relative or personal history with VTEs, then in the antepartum period, they can get prophylactic, intermediate, or adjusted dose of low molecular weight heparin and unfractionated heparin. And postpartum, they'll get prophylactic or intermediate dosing. So you can see kind of as your risk increases with personal history or family history, you kind of go up on your dosing of anticoagulation. Okay, next, so talk to me, what if they have no inherited thrombophilias? Like this is just someone who walks through your door, they've never been found to have a history of inherited thrombophilia. Yeah, so now what we're considering is not anything about inherited thrombophilia, but more about personal history of venous thromboembolism, right? Because that's really the sort of trigger point. If there's no inherited thrombophilia and no history of venous thromboembolism, no, you're really not thinking about anything, right? We don't start pregnant women at baseline on anticoagulation. So antepartum, these patients should undergo surveillance and postpartum patients should still undergo surveillance or consideration of thromboprophylaxis if there are other medical risk factors. Next, if you diagnose somebody with a venous thromboembolism in pregnancy, so they have an active clot going on, um, then you want to treat it, right? So we'll start them on adjusted dose, low molecular weight, or unfractionated heparin during the pregnancy at that point, and continue it through at least six weeks postpartum. Okay, so no VTE has a VTE. The last thing that we'll talk about is a history of VTE, right? And history of VTE kind of gets a little funky because then you probably remember from medical school talking about things like whether it's provoked or unprovoked or um, things like that. So let's just kind of break it down once more. Single unprovoked history of venous thromboembolism, so no other major risk factors that contributed to that. Um, antepartum and postpartum you should be using 
some sort of form of low molecular weight or unfractionated heparin, whether that be prophylactic, intermediate, or adjusted dose. There's not a recommendation strongly for one over another. If there's a history of a single provoked venous thromboembolism, so things like immobility or major surgery, you should treat that as if there's no prior history of venous thromboembolism and they are candidates for surveillance. Important to know, though, if there's a kind of what you might consider in your mind provoked because it was in the context of oral contraceptives or other like major estrogen containing type of medication use, that should still go in your thought process of I need to put this person on prophylactic in the unprovoked category. Um, if the patient has a history of two or more venous thromboembolisms in the past and is not on lifetime anticoagulation, they now move up a category and should be considered for intermediate or adjusted dose thromboprophylaxis during their pregnancy and for six weeks postpartum. Um, if the patient has had two or more prior events and is on lifelong anticoagulation, they're going to go on to the full strength or adjusted dose version of low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin. And in the postpartum period, pending safety profile, breastfeeding goals, etc. Go back and listen to the breastfeeding episode to hear about that. Um, they'll just resume their previous anticoagulation. All right, Faye. So sort of the last thing that I think that we really should talk about um, is delivery. Um, because, you know, at our hospital, at least, we've got a pretty high epidural rate. And the sort of discussion all the time is about when do you need to stop your heparin? Do we switch it over to something different leading up to delivery? What are the actual guidelines on this? The Society for Obstetric Anesthesia has actually published a guideline talking about different dosages, when to hold those doses in order for the patient to be able to receive neuraxal analgesia, and then also when to resume that medication postpartum. So we're going to break this down into unfractionated heparin versus low molecular weight heparin. Um, low molecular weight heparin, as we probably all know, has a longer half-life, and that's why you only have to give it to somebody once a day for prophylaxis, whereas for unfractionated heparin, usually you have to do twice daily for prophylactic dosing. In terms of unfractionated heparin, we're going to break that down into prophylactic dosing as well as uh, adjusted dosing. So for prophylactic dosing, prior to getting neuraxial analgesia, you should hold the dose for about 12 hours um, and also assess their coagulation status. And then postpartum-wise, you should wait at least one hour after the catheter is removed before you restart their prophylactic heparin. In terms of adjusted dose heparin, so if you're giving someone greater than 10,000 or uh, 20,000 units per day of unfractionated heparin, you should hold that dose for 24 hours and assess their coagulation status before giving them an epidural. And then postpartum-wise, again, you should wait at least one hour after after the catheter is removed before restarting their dose as well. In both of these cases, you can also consider holding the dose for the same amount of time prior to their induction of labor or their scheduled cesarean section. In terms of low molecular weight uh, heparin, the prophylactic dosing, again, you should wait 12 hours uh, before the last dose before giving them the epidural, and then waiting at least 12 hours uh, after they've been given their neuraxial blockade and also at least four hours after the catheter is removed to restart low molecular weight heparin or Lovenox. Um, there's insufficient data in terms of making a recommendation for 
placing an epidural less than 12 hours from the last dose of Lovenox. But in a high-risk situation, Society of Obstetric Anesthesia says that the benefits may outweigh the risks of having general anesthesia. And finally, for Lovenox, in terms of intermediate or adjusted dose, you should wait 24 hours after your last dose before they can get an epidural, and then waiting again at least four hours after the catheter is removed to restart the Lovenox. And similarly, in both cases, you should also consider waiting the times that we talked about, so 12 hours for prophylaxis and 24 hours for intermediate or adjusted dose before scheduling their induction of labor um, or their scheduled cesarean. All right, Nick, I know there's a ton to talk about with this topic, and there's a lot that we left out in both of those practice bulletins, but we unfortunately are only a 10 to 20 minute podcast. So that does bring us to the end of our episode. Let's go ahead and try and sum up. Sounds good. So we started off hearkening back to the physiologic changes of pregnancy. Um, Remember, pregnant women are four to five times more likely to have a thrombotic event than non-pregnant women. And we think about this because of Virchow's triad. Pregnant women are at increased risk of hypercoagulability due to increased clotting potential and decreased anticoagulation activity. And they also have venous stasis um, in the lower extremities due to compression of the IVC. There's also a good argument that there's probably the third component of Virchow's triad as well in endothelial injury. Folks who have inherited thrombophilias are at even increased risk. So we talked about lots of different types of inherited thrombophilias. Um, The things to remember about them are that the most common type of mutation is factor V Leiden heterozygosity, and this is responsible for up to 40% of all venous thromboembolic events during pregnancy. Having that by itself doesn't really put you at that much of an increased risk for VTE, but if you have a personal history of VTE as well as factor V Leiden heterozygosity, your risk of having a VTE during pregnancy it goes up to about 10%. Um, and if you are a factor V Leiden homozygote, you are at even higher risk of having VTEs during pregnancy. Similar things can be said about the prothrombin gene. There's both heterozygosity and homozygosity. And again, you are at higher risk of VTE um, if you are homozygous for that mutation. Antithrombin gene deficiency is not very common, but uh, severe deficiencies put you at the highest risk um, for having uh, VTEs during pregnancy. So basically what we're saying is that you can divide these mutations into high and low-risk thrombophilias, high-risk being factor V Leiden homozygosity, prothrombin gene homozygosity, antithrombin deficiency, or factor V Leiden and prothrombin gene heterozygosity, meaning you have one mutation of each. Low risk includes factor V Leiden heterozygosity, prothrombin gene heterozygosity, protein C or protein S deficiency, and antiphospholipid antibody. We did not spend a lot of time about talking about testing for inherited thrombophilias, but again, the practice bulletin 187 um, is an excellent resource for reviewing whether testing is reliable during pregnancy, if it's reliable during thrombosis, and if it's reliable with anticoagulation. We reviewed a bit about the types of anticoagulation that can be used. Again, generally in pregnancy, you have a choice between unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin. Neither of those cross the placenta and are safe. Warfarin can be used for folks who have mechanical heart valves, um, but should only be used in that instance because fetal effect risks and is used in that instance because there's even higher risk with mechanical heart valves, even when folks are placed on low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin. 
Faye then has a beautiful, beautiful set of flowcharts that she's created to talk about the inherited thrombophilias versus the non-inherited thrombophilias and breaking it down into risk. Um, rather than belabor those in the summary here, these beautiful, beautiful flowcharts are going to go on the website and help you break down in your mind exactly when should I start and how much should I start of a thromboprophylactic agent. In terms of delivering timing, um, you should consider stopping these women's anticoagulation medication prior to their delivery. And so many people will consider scheduling an induction of labor or their cesarean section so that they are able to time when these medications are stopped. Briefly, for patients who are on prophylactic dosing of heparin or Lovenox, they should at least have 12 hours of their medications held prior to placement of neuraxal an anesthesia or their scheduled induction of labor um, or cesarean section. And then for heparin, they should wait at least one hour after the catheter has been removed before restarting their medication. And for Lovenox, it should be at least 12 hours after starting the epidural and at least four hours after it's been removed before you restart it. For adjusted dose heparin and Lovenox, these doses should be held for at least 24 hours prior to placing neuroaxial blockade. And also, um, you should consider scheduling their induction of labor and cesarean section 24 hours after stopping these medications. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our podcast on inherited thrombophilias and anticoagulation in pregnancy. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. Find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to give us some support, go ahead and go into our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee, and give us some donations. We have show notes for especially this episode, but all of our episodes on our website, www.CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you found a mistake in this episode or any other episode, or just want to give us some suggestions like our lovely listeners did for this episode, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Mm -hmm.